Bing bong. I'm live with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast where I've got the great Lawrence Lepard in the waiting room where we're going to talk about Bitcoin, gold, all the macroeconomic kind of stuff, and we'll dive into it really deep. But first, big shout out to my sponsor, Pleb Lab. I got the t-shirt on here. They're uh, the best hacking and co-working space in, in Austin, Texas. If you want to go work with other Bitcoiners, you got to check out Pleb Lab and go into there while you're down in Austin. Uh, they have you know day passes, monthly passes, nomad passes too. If you're traveling in and out of town, it's a great option. You get access to their internal communication and all that kind of stuff. So be sure to check out pleblab.com. And they've also got a startup day. So if you're going to Bitblock Boom, August 21st and 22nd, the couple days before Bitblock Boom, they're going to be having a lot of activities and other things going on at Pleb Lab. So be sure to check that out and uh, come join me at Startup Day. And if you're going to Bitblock Boom, you can use promo code GreenCandle. That's all one word, lowercase, and you can get 10% off your entire ticket. I'll be at uh, Bitblock Boom doing the man on the street videos, kind of uh, traveling around, sticking mics in people's faces. So come find me there and come join me. All right. Enough from me. I got Lawrence in, in the waiting room. Lawrence, how are you doing today, man? I'm great. Thanks, Brandon, for having me on your show. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's, it's great to, to, to get you on the show. And uh, it was great meeting you at the Canadian Bitcoin Conference. But Likewise. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, uh, before that, let's, let's take a step back and dive into the, the Bitcoin origin story, because I know you're a gold bug. So I feel like the, uh, you know, the relationship between gold bugs and Bitcoiners are kind of similar in a sense, but there's also, you know, some gold bugs that are very anti-Bitcoin. So, you know, yeah. how did you, I guess, get get along, get orange pilled and uh, yeah. so kind of your way there? My sound money journey started a long time ago, long before Bitcoin was even, you know, around, right? I mean, pre-2008, gold was your only or your best sound money choice. Now Bitcoin's a better choice. But uh, and so I, I was kind of aware of it probably in 2010-ish, maybe. I heard about it through the Ron Paul circles, the free state stuff. And, um, you know, and I thought this is an interesting project, but I was skeptical that technically you could make sound money on a computer. You know, I've been tried a bunch of times before uh, gold money and, you know, Adam Sabo and some other guys had tried it and it hadn't really worked. Um, so, but I kept an eye on it and then I thought about buying some um, through, you know, with paper wallet. That, that seemed kind of cumbersome. And uh, yeah, I was lucky Mt. Gox came out and uh, I said, all right, a brokerage firm, I can buy some. That's good. I had forms filled out. I was just about to wire them the money, and then they failed. So I kind of dodged that bullet, you know, through just luck, sheer luck. Uh, and then when Coinbase came public and, you know, big, reputable, venture-backed California company that could buy Bitcoin bank, uh, you know, I bought some, uh, I think it was 300 and something of a coin in, in those days. So, uh, and I and I started kind of exploring and under, trying to understand more of it. But my, my concern, I had been a technology investor for a long, long time, and sound money gold guy for a long, long time. And my concern was always, is this technology sound enough to really be immutable and, and, you know, reputable? I just, again, having seen the failed experiments, I thought, well, this one could fail too. Um, and so I started going to conferences and meeting core developers. The MIT had a lot of early conferences in the early days. And, uh, and I learned a lot there, you know, the, the having the difficulty, all the, all the things that we all know now that make it what it is, you know, SHA-256 and the cryptography, you know, the, the blockchain, et cetera. So, and it became clear to me over time that, you know, yeah, actually it is what it says and what they said it was, which is really sound money that can't be changed and with a, you know, with a mathematical formula and so on and so forth. And so, you know, my conviction just kind of grew and grew and grew. Now, I was always quite convicted, still am, that gold is a great form of sound money, not as good as Bitcoin, but good. 
you know, the government can't print it and that's a huge advantage, right? And gold has protected you from, you know, from government printing to a degree. Um, a lot of what, you know, I consider should have been the excess has been taken away because they've manipulated the shit out of it, as we all know. But um, but it has worked. I mean, it's gone up 8% a year compounds in 71. That's better than zero. Um, you know, and, and you know, it, it bought a men's suit in Roman times, still buys a men's suit, one ounce. So, so you know, you, you've kind of, um, you know, you've got gold ticking along as, as big old analog sound money. And then along comes this new form of sound money, digital sound money, which has a gazillion other advantages and uh, and it's not very well known or adopted. And so you've got two things pushing the Bitcoin price higher. You know, the fact that the fiat currencies are all getting debased enormously over time and eventually will be completely debased, i.e. worthless, uh, which is hyper Bitcoinization. Um, and then you've got the fact that, you know, you've got this new form of sound money, which is not widely known, not widely distributed, still in the early infancy days. And more and more people are going to come and realize that it's really, you know, it's gold that doesn't cost money to store. It's gold that can be transferred in 10 minutes. Um, you know, it's, it's gold that's deflationary, not inflationary. I mean, even in the case of gold, the supply of gold will double in the next 40 years. It grows at about 1.8% a year. So compound that, you know, we're going to have more gold. And of course, as we all know, the supply of Bitcoin is fixed. And uh, so that makes it a deflationary currency, which some people say is bad. I think it's obviously good, um, you know, following along Jeff Booth's thesis of how the world is relentlessly deflationary. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of how I migrated. I just kept an open mind to it. And I was always techno savvy because I'd been a venture capital investor. I'd seen the Internet and I watched the network effect take place in the Internet. And I think there's a big network effect taking place in Bitcoin. I mean, I, of course, in the early days, one of the great things, well, is this, you know, is this um, what was the predecessor to Facebook? There was another predecessor. Um, MySpace. Yeah, my, exactly. This is MySpace to Facebook. And. And, um, you know, that was always a concern, a lot of people in the early days. But then I came, you came to realize, well, no, because not everyone's going to MySpace. And it's it's like Google today. I mean, you know, nobody's going to supplant Google as the leading search engine because everyone goes there. And so networks, as they grow, they, you know, they they grow geometrically and they become more valuable exponentially. And and that's really what's going on with Bitcoin. I think the odds of somebody coming and supplanting Bitcoin, a better Bitcoin coming along, have, have kind of dropped to zero. And there might have been a time earlier on when, you know, there were a lot more competitors and you know, as, as we all know, we had fork wars and we had block size wars and there have been a lot of issues as this thing has grown up, you know, and, and even as recently as not that many years ago, there were some security problems and, you know, some breaches and the core developers have, have kind of, you know, the community has done a good job of holding it all together. And so I've grown, I've grown very comfortable that the technical risk is quite low and I see continued adoption by any metrics that, you know, you want to look at, you know, wallets, addresses, number of coins per address, et cetera. Uh, and so to me, it's just, it's a matter of time until everybody realizes that this is your, your superior savings form of money. You know, I, I think the, the highest and best use case in my view is store of value. Um, the remittances are great. You know, lightning's great. I think it's going to take over a lot of different areas, but the most obvious to me is store of value. Um, you know, and, and so there's, you know, 400, depends on what you want to measure, but there's 400, 500, 600 trillion dollars of assets out there. And Bitcoin's not even a half a trillion, you know, or maybe it's just over a half a trillion dollars of value. And as more and more people come to understand it, more and more people are going to park their money in Bitcoin. And, you know, as, as I know, you know, and, and I know that the, the prices are just going to be much, much higher. I mean, what are there? 21 million coins or 40. I heard the other day that 40 million millionaires. In the world so 
if every millionaire wanted to have just one Bitcoin, you couldn't do it. <laughs> I mean, so what does that tell you, right, about where the price of Bitcoin is going? It's going higher. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I I feel like, you know, as you and Greg always say, it's just math, right? But, right. I, you know, I, I it, it is interesting, your journey, right? But Because you, you said you were kind of like, you know, in the tech venture capital space. So, you know, did you avoid, I guess, going down the shitcoin rabbit hole and that, that kind of avenue as That's well? That's a great question. Um, no, I, I can't say I totally avoided it because I, like so many others, I thought, well, maybe one of these others is going to work. So I confess, I own some Ethereum and I own some Litecoin and um, I was smart enough or lucky enough when I could. Remember when they forked Bitcoin a couple of times? It was Bitcoin gold, but you know, Bitcoin yeah. cash. I, I got those, and if they were tradable, I sold them and just bought the major coin because I was pretty sure the forks wouldn't work. Um, but no, I I never promoted the shit coins, and I never went crazy on them. But I used to be of the view that there was a place for shit coins, and some of them would get used. And you know, before Lightning came along, I thought, well, maybe. You know, it was clear to me that Bitcoin was the superior store of value because of its size and the, you know, just the different, you know, I mean, the way it was constructed, it was going to be the store of value case. But I thought, well, you know what, somebody's going to make another coin that's really good for transactions that's cheap, you know, that would, for under, under a penny of, per transaction, you can you can transact digitally. Um, and of course, I couldn't see the Lightning Network. It didn't exist. Um, and so, you know, I was wondering, well, is that going to be Litecoin? Is that going to be Cardano? Is it, you know, what is it going to be? There might be some other solution. So I owned a few of those for a while, but as, as time went by, particularly when Lightning emerged, it was like, and as I got to see the monetary policies of those other coins, like Ethereum, was he changed that policy like six or seven times? You know, and, I mean, it's just like, okay, you know, you really don't have a cap on the number of these things. So why do these things have any value? I mean, the whole value prop of Bitcoin, as we all know, is the cap on issuance. And and frankly, that's one of the things that really disturbs me. I've heard from time to time, not many, but I've heard a few Bitcoiners. I was on the stage with one over in England who said, well, the cap's a problem. You know, we got to maybe grow the cap at some slow rate to account for, you know, more usage in a bigger world. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, you know, I mean, first of all, there's no way the nodes and miners and everyone else going to agree to do that. But second, I mean, if any core developer proposed that, I hope they'd be laughed out of the room. You know, the cap is the cap, period. So... Um, yeah, so I, I had a little bit of a shitcoin uh, experience thinking that maybe some of them would work. And now I'm pretty sure they're all going to die. Um, I could be wrong about that. One or two of them might make it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's kind of the, the way uh, that things are trending, right? I mean, it, it definitely seems like Bitcoin is king. And, you know, I think to a certain extent, everybody kind of had that like crypto curious aspect of things is what I, I guess I'll call it, you know. Yeah, but, uh, yeah I, I mean, I want to dive into the, the, the dichotomy between gold and Bitcoin because sure. you know, obviously they're... Bitcoin has all the, you know, sound money principles similar to gold, but, you know, obviously in the kind of the growing digital age, it seems to make a lot of sense, but, you know, it seems like in, there's a, there's a difference between the gold bugs and the Bitcoiners where they kind of, you know, agree on a lot of things, but for some reason, a lot of the gold bugs aren't coming around to Bitcoin just yet. You know, why do you kind of think that is? And that's a great, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, let me just give you some data that I think you find helpful. I go to gold conferences. I speak at gold conferences. I always ask how many of you guys own Bitcoin? About half the hands go up. So, you know, there are a lot, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, I think gold people are generally speaking Austrian economists. We all know that fiat's doomed. So in that, gold people and Bitcoiners are completely aligned. You know, they hate fiat. They know the government's debasing their wealth and that it pisses them off. Okay. Um, some of the gold people, I think, have been locked in kind of the old mindset that if you can't touch it or feel it, it's not real. You know, they, they're not 
digitally astute. They don't understand what immutable digital stuff is. And, and frankly, I get it. I mean, I, you know, everyone was skeptical of it when they first heard it. Some of the gold people, um, they look at guys like, you know, Sam Bankman Freed or, or even guys who I think are pretty legit, but very promotional like Pomp. And they say, oh gosh, it's just a lot of arm waving and promotional crap. You know, how can it be sound money when it's got these clowns in it? Um, you know, and, and obviously the shit coiners, in my opinion, did a lot of damage to the underlying thesis of Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin's a legitimate technological innovation. Um, the shit coiners are not, you know, they are, you know, they are unregistered securities where they can, you know, the usually the people at the top control the issuance and they've issued themselves coin and, and they're running pump and dumps. So, um, you know, and, and gold people are good at sniffing out fraud. And so they see that and they go, oh, I get it. These guys are fraud. Yeah. Therefore, everything in this area is fraud. And they haven't taken the time to understand technologically what Bitcoin is and why it's different than shit coins and why the Sam Bankman Freeds are, are not a, anything like any real Bitcoiners would would ever be. You know, I mean, and what's ironic is many of us who saw Bankman Freed on the stage at you know these shows and so forth, we knew this guy was a bad guy. It was not hard to figure it out, you know. And uh, um, but you know the, the SEC let him run wild and you know it ended as we all kind of knew it would in tears and um, so on and so forth. So, um, but uh, you know, gold guys. I don't know about Peter Schiff. I mean, maybe he owns some Bitcoin secretly. I don't know. Uh, his son does, which I find interesting. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think you know, so it's a generational thing. Uh, they don't want to spend the time to understand it. You know, gold has served them well and so on and so forth. But I found over time, I mean, I've had many people. My, I ran a fund that was only gold and silver and gold and silver miners pre-Bitcoin. And because I started the fund um, actually started in 2006, uh, you know, um, and I've had a lot of those people be very suspicious of Bitcoin and I've converted them, you know, by explaining why it makes sense. And, and then just so you know, that fund right now is about 85% gold and silver miners. That's what people invested in me for. But it's about 15% Bitcoin and some Bitcoin companies. And, and, you know, I've had a couple of people leave me, say, I was only with you for gold and silver. You didn't do this other shitty stuff. I'm out. I was like, okay, fine. Um, the way I justify it, I say, look, you guys, um, I'm supposed to be protecting you from inflation and, you know, I'm a sound money fund. And, um, you know, if I didn't have the soundest money on the planet as at least a piece of my fund, I wouldn't be doing the right job for you. And the reason it's only 15% is the volatility. You know, I, I've got investors who tend to be on the older side, a lot of boomers. And, you know, it's, you know for older people, for young people, the volatility is like a plus, like, okay, I'll buy it when it's cheap. I'll sell it when it's, you know, dear, blah, blah, blah. For older people, it's a scary thing because if you take a lot of your wealth and you're 70 years old and you put in, you have a 70% drawdown. Well, that scares the living shit out of you because you don't have the time to recover that a young person has. So so that's why I've, I've weighted it the way I've weighted it in the fund. Um, and I think, you know, I, I understand gold people. I try to be kind to them. And, it, you know, as long as they're open-minded, you know, I understand why they're skeptical of it. I get it. You know, and, and also look at it from their point of view. They've been a lot of them have been fighting this fight for 30 years. And then along comes this better, more shiny object. And, and it's kind of kicking their ass. They're like, Jesus Christ. You know, and it feels very unfair to them. Uh, I get that too. But my view is you got to adapt to the times, right? I mean, you get new information and you adapt. And we're still very much in the early days of Bitcoin. You know, it's like I, I try to emphasize to them they're not too late, particularly with it here at 30. I mean, it was at 68. Obviously, you know, it was less of a deal, but it's a great deal right now. It was a great deal, you know, six, nine months ago at 15, right? A really great deal. So, 
Um, you know, and I say, you got to buy the dips and you got a dollar cost average. Uh, and I've got a lot of my clients doing that now. So that gives you some background on that. Yeah, that's great stuff. And it, I mean, it seems like it, it, it's kind of, I guess, maybe, maybe it resonates more with people a little bit now. Uh, you know, I, it seems like you, you kind of had people that already had the hard money principles, right. Of right. gold and silver and other things like that. But I mean, do, do you think like the massive amounts of money printing that you, that we saw in 2020 and kind of like the crazy inflationary times, you think that's kind of, I guess, leaving people more open to the opportunity of, of Bitcoin and kind of, uh, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, you know, with each down cycle and recovery, more and more people get converted. Do you know what I mean? I mean, a thousand down to 300 and then 17,000 down to 3,500. And, you know, I mean, each each time, it, you know, it's we're, we're seeing higher highs and higher lows. And and yeah, I mean, the other thing I think really woke a lot of people up was just the explosive nature of Bitcoin. I mean, as you recall, in 18, 19, I mean, that those couple of years it traded between five and 10 K for a long time. And then bam, it was at, you know, 50. And I mean, this is a sharper spear. I mean, it's, it's what, you know, Paul Tudor Jones says, this is, a, this is the fastest horse in the monetary debasement race, or I like Luke Roman, who he says, you know, this is the only functioning fire alarm because the price of gold has been suppressed. And when Bitcoin went from 10 to 50, I mean, I think a lot of people woke up and were like, holy shit, you know, this thing's real. You know, and, and they're going to be my view is they're going to be equally surprised when it goes from 15 or 30 to 150, you know, and then again, they're going to be surprised when it goes from 200, 150 to a million. And, and we're going to just continue to see these cycles. And as you know, they're based on the four year cycle of the halving. And so, you know, I fully expect that, you know, we'll come out of this year in the 50, 60 area and we'll next year we'll be up through 100. And, you know, then we'll really ramp off of that the way you do kind of, you know, 18, 12 to 18 months after having and, you know, we'll, we'll have two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars Bitcoin. And and honestly, at that point in time, if, you know, you, you're overweight, probably wouldn't be crazy to sell a little bit and, you know, uh, either use it to buy it when it comes back in or put it, you know, diversify your assets. I mean, I know a lot of people are 100 percent Bitcoin. I'm not. But, you know, I'm like 50 percent gold, and silver, 50 percent Bitcoin personally. So, um, you know, to me, they balance each other out. They're both forms of sound money. One is analog. One is digital. Um, and you know, the digital form is, is growing much more rapidly. Adoption is growing much more rapidly. Gold's been around 5,000 years. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, and, and the price, by the way, the price of gold has never gone up five X in 18 months. It just hasn't happened. You know, a big up year for gold is 30%, but in turn, a big drawdown for gold is 20%. You know, and as you and I both know, we've had some really, we've had some drawdowns in Bitcoin and we had 90%, 80%, 70%. That's a pretty big drawdown. And, uh, you know, some people are, you know, I mean, the way I handle that, the way I advise others to handle that is you, you just don't, you, you don't put all your eggs in that basket. You know, I mean, if, if it's, if it's got a lot of upward optionality, which it does, then you make sure you weight it accordingly. If you have, you know, 4% personal weighting into Bitcoin, it draws down 70%. You're not getting wiped out. You know, you use the drawdown to buy more. I mean, that's what I did. I was buying pretty heavily in that in the fall of 2017, when it when it ramped up to 17,000, actually I think I might have hit 19 very briefly, but I, for a while it was in the 17,000 range, and I was buying, and I bought a lot at thousand and two thousand all the way up, and and then it, and then it crashed. Um, it went from 17 to 10, and I doubled down. It went from 10 to three and a half. I doubled down again. So I mean, it's kind of like you got to be, you know, you got to know what you know and know why you own it and be prepared. I mean, I. I, you know, the, the Bitcoin I own, I have a very long-term time frame on. I don't intend to sell any of it. You know, it probably end up going to my kids. So, 
Well, it's kind of interesting that you're lining out, you know, we're talking a little bit about price action too, because obviously, you know, as you lined out, Bitcoin's very, uh, you know, young, right? I mean, it's right. been late 2008, 2009 time is when, you know, it kind of, you know, right. came scene. And, you know, since that time, we've had basically a decade long of, you know, zero rate in, or zero percent interest rates, obviously yep. 2019, the hiked a little bit, then pulled back. Mm -hmm. um, and now we, we're seeing massive amounts of inflation. Well, it is kind of interesting, right? I mean, the macro environment right now is a little hairy. Uh, oh. Come around the uh, come around. A little. The <laughs> yeah, let's dive in. So, so a little. like yeah, uh, it's massively hairy. I mean, shit's breaking all over the place. I mean, you know, look, they're, they've thus far they've been effective at sweeping it under the rug, but you know, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, Credit Suisse. I mean, you know, they, they, look, they they must inflate or die. And in, in the credit, in the leveraged credit based system that we have, what Powell is doing is is an elaborate bluff that cannot last forever. You know, or or to the degree that he tries to make it last forever, we're going to have something that's going to rival the Great Depression in terms of a downturn, in terms of failures. And you know, look, economies spiral up as credit is created, and they spiral down as credit. And, and values go down. And, um, you know, they obviously got carried away with COVID and grew the money supply 42% in two years and sent checks to everybody. And, you know, it, 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 it kept everything going, kept the economy going. But, you know, it, it sure wasn't transitory inflation. They told us it became red hot inflation. And of course, now they're trying to solve that. And that's why the price of Bitcoin is down. The price of gold has been softer than it otherwise would have been. But um, you know, they can only continue this act for a certain amount of time. And then you watch, they'll pivot the exact same way they did from, you know, inflation is transitory to, oh my shit, oh my God, we got an inflation problem. And so, you know, at some point here, what we're going to see is that we're going to have a, you know, oh my God, we got a, you know, we got an economic collapse problem. You know, the bond market's falling apart. The stock market's falling apart. The economy's falling apart. Unemployment's rising very rapidly. You know, okay, fine. What do we do? What's the playbook? Well, it's we know what it has always has been since 1971. We take interest rates down and we print money. Uh, and, and that's what will happen next. And, and when that does, you know, Bitcoin will squirt through a couple hundred thousand and gold will squirt through three or four thousand. And, you know, once again, these assets will protect us from the debasement that's occurring. And, you know, in that next round, the Fed balance sheet won't be nine trillion. It'll be 17 or 18. And, Federal deficit won't be 32 billion trillion. It'll be 45 or 50. And, you know, gasoline won't be three, four dollars. It'll be seven or eight dollars. And I mean, it's and so on and so on. Right. I mean, that's just that's the system we're in and it's broken. And uh, and that's why, you know, more and more people are coming to understand that these assets are really important, you know, in terms of preserving wealth. I mean, real estate works, too. I mean, you know, basically, what's the problem? The problem is the government can't, they've got a spending problem. They can't, it's like a drinking problem. They, they try and solve too much drinking with more drinking. And, and that drinking really is just printing money. And, you know, that's going to lead to, you know, currency debasement. And ultimately, I, I think, you know, and this is hard to tell when, but I kind of pick point it as between some 2028 and 2035, I think they're going to lose control of the whole damn thing. And the currency is going to be worthless. Um, but, you know, that's that's an extreme statement and I could be wrong about it. But that's um, that's how, you know, if you kind of look at the history of arcs of inflation leading to ultimately hyperinflation, that's kind of how they take place. Yeah, I mean, it seems like we're kind of like almost in that space right now. I mean, oh, yeah. if you look at the CPI print, right, they're they're 
you know, manipulating it and it's getting lower and lower, right? But yeah. it doesn't seem like inflation is going anywhere. And obviously that's compounding from yeah. the 8% last year to the 4% this year. That's obviously compounded over time. Yeah. And it seems to be getting worse, right? And the inflation's staying sticky. So, I mean, you know, the Fed's almost trying to, like, it seems like their only card in their in their playbook is to, you know, raise interest rates, right? I mean, but, you know, right. we've had the economy that was essentially shut down for months at a time with COVID. And then now, you know, the massive amounts of money printing, it seems like it's a it's a recipe for disaster. But, you know, we're kind of, I guess, in this stage right now where we're floating along and everybody's kind right. of, I guess, just dealing with the times. Right. If you look at the data that the Fed has kind of spoke on, right, you, you named unemployment. Right. It hasn't gone up as quite as drastically as they right. think. Uh, it should have by now and that they're still going to kind of continue. Well, and, and keep in mind, they use a birth death model. They've got, you know, none of these numbers are trustworthy, Brandon. I mean, they're all bullshit. I mean, uh, you know, the inflation rates are much higher than they say they are. Unemployment's probably much higher. You know, they've, they've, they've redefined unemployment to, you know, once you drop out of the workforce, you're no longer unemployed if you've been out for a certain period of time. I mean, you know, we live in a big, house of mirrors that you know they're just trying to keep it all together and keep us all happy and they lie to us about everything so you know it's pretty hard to really gauge what's truly going on in the economy but i think i think the economy is a lot worse than most people realize and i think that you know the, the you can only you know what, what people are doing right now is they're living off their credit cards you know the the credit card growth rate is just it's going through the moon and and the related issue that, you know, this all comes down to confidence, confidence in the fiat currency, confidence in the Fed, confidence in the dollar, which in turn all comes down to is the government, what's the government fiscal situation look like or financial situation. And as you know, we got 32, you know, we had 31.4 trillion. It's now grown 800 billion in, you know, less than a few weeks of June. It's going, you know, there is no limit until January of 2025. And you just know this debt's going to get bigger. I mean, you know, in the GFC coming out of 2008, we printed $3 trillion and it took us three or four years to do that. I mean, this time around in 2019 to, you know, 2021, where we had the COVID event, I mean, we printed uh, $6 trillion and it took us under, you know, six months or a year to do that. So, you know, the next time around, we're going to print $12 trillion and, and, you know, and this is how gasoline gets to eight or nine bucks. And this is, this is you know, this is just, I mean, they are they are robbing us blind by diluting the value of the currency. And so anyone who has any savings absolutely positively has to convert those savings into something that can't be printed, you know, in physical goods, food, guns, you know, real estate, um, Bitcoin, gold, silver. They all qualify as tangible things that the government can't just print out of thin air. Yeah. And I mean, you, you brought up the statistics too, right? I mean, I, uh, on the unemployment note, I mean, I saw something the other day that said 650,000 Americans over the age of 80 right. uh, working last year, which is 18% more than a decade earlier. So, yeah. I mean, you know, that's probably inflating those employment numbers as well, right? I mean, sure. we have people working later in life, un sure. un uh, not able to retire. Well, that's um, the thing. I mean, Think about it. It's really sad. I mean, if, if you know you retire, you have a certain set amount of money coming in, either through your pension, your Social Security, or your savings. And you know, you might, you know, you most people I think when they do the retirement equation, they think, okay, I'm 80, I could live to 100. The odds are pretty good. I'm not going to make it beyond that. So this money's got to last me 20 years. Well, if suddenly you have a huge spate of inflation, um, you know, that's that's a problem, right? You're looking at running out of money now. If you have relatives, they'll take care of you, whatever it might be. And that's that's retiring at 80. I mean. 
in general, the, the, you know, what a lot of people were trying to do is retire at 65. Well, given that generally speaking, not entirely, because there are some, some living, some death stuff is, is getting bad going the wrong way. But I mean, in today's world, compared to 50 years ago, in today's world at 65, you've probably got a life expectancy of another 25 years. You know, you're, you're good odds you make it into your 80s or 90s. And so, you know, you got to have enough. It's very hard to know what's the right number to have saved up, you know, because you don't know what the inflation is going to be. You don't know how much they're going to rob. You know, I mean, I saw my dad retire, you know, in his 60s and had a fair amount of money. By the time he passed, it really wasn't very much money anymore, you know, because the cost of everything gone up. So, uh, you know, and I think everybody's faced with that problem. It's got people working longer. And I, that's part of what's one of the evils of fiat is that you know, nobody can really retire with any sort of sense of security because you just don't know how much how quickly they're going to take your money away from you or your per the purchasing power of your money away from you. You know, and you don't want to be 85 years old and eating cat food because you can't afford steak. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a, unfortunately the situation that we're living in. Right. I mean, it, right. it's people on both ends. Right. Yeah. It's hurting the people that are retiring and, you know, they're having to go back in the work, workforce. And it's also hurting the younger generation that's trying to get in. And, you know, absolutely. I mean, I look at my kids are all in the 20s, millennials, and, you know, they're all doing fine, making decent salaries. But it's kind of like, gee, dad, how am I ever going to afford a house? You know, exactly. they've never been less affordable. You know, they're very, it's, it's very, there's very much a housing bubble, just like there's a bubble in all assets because of all this money floating around. And of course, now the interest rates are being jacked up. And that's the other thing I want to point out. This interest rates being jacked up really is the pin that I think is going to pop this bubble. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's taken a while, but we saw what it did to Silicon Valley Bank. And it's, th th there are a lot more Silicon Valley banks out there, in my opinion. We just haven't found them yet. So, that, so that's coming to a broader swath of companies. I noticed I put up in my Twitter feed recently, I saw uh, bankruptcies, um, you know, rate of bankruptcies has gone up substantially since these interest rates started going up. The other interest rate chart I think is really fascinating. You can Google it and just put in, you know, U.S. federal government interest expense, you know, by year. And if you look at it, you know, two or three years ago, we were in the two or three hundred million dollars a year or billion dollars, I'm sorry, a year range. And now we're kind of at 800, 850, you know, going to a trillion. And of course, by raising interest rates to fight inflation, you know, the U.S. federal government is running much larger deficits to pay the to pay that interest. And so, in, in my opinion, there's a natural limit to how far Powell can go here, you know, before everything blows up, you know, including the deficit. And you know, the the other thing that's going on that I find interesting is that there just aren't many people buying our bonds anymore. Chinese are reducing their balances. Japanese are reducing their balances. A lot of people are, you know, people aren't willing. They're looking at the U.S. and they're saying, hey, this kind of looks like a third world country. You know, you guys are, you know, printing a lot of money. You're, you're spending a lot. You're spending a lot more than you should. You're running a huge deficit. You're not willing to control your, you know, your entitlements. And as a result, we know that you're going to monetize this debt. Therefore, we know that the dollar isn't going to have as much purchasing power. In fact, I think that's the next big move out there right now. I've, Dollars in the 103 range right now. I, I think the dollar is going much, much lower. I really do. In fact, even Yellen said that, you know, we could use a, a lower dollar. And people have talked about, hey, the U.S. losing some of its reserve currency status wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, and I think that's right. I mean, I think we have to do that. Um, but, but you know, in turn, what that brings here is more inflation. And, um, you know, my view is this next decade is going to look very much like the 70s where probably the biggest economic risk to the average person is inflation. Whatever you have in savings, if you're not investing it in a way that will increase its value to match inflation, 
you're 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 being robbed. You're you know you're you're losing value and savings value over time. Yeah, and I mean that 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 makes a ton of sense. And obviously, you know that there's there's a hard asset a- aspect of things, and it seems like you know inflation is just going to be running rampant. And you know we've had Yellen said that there's room for for multiple um, multiple global reserve currencies. I mean, you know they just kind of hint. <laughs> I mean, at first it was inflation was transitory, and now it seems like they're essentially priming all of us to be. Well, ready. that's correct. I mean, I don't know if you've also seen. I mean, it's 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 subtle, but in several places it's come out. So, well, maybe two percent is not the right target anymore. You know, what I mean? maybe you know, maybe, maybe we can live with three or four percent. And I think the reason they're doing that is to condition everybody because you know they're they're going at some point here. I mean, look, the, the Fed has three mandates mandates, right? I mean, we know the first two have stated you know, full employment and stable or low inflation, which they've somehow interpreted as 2% a year. I mean, my view is low inflation is zero, but whatever, they've, they've come to the conclusion thinking we can tolerate and we should want 2% a year. And that's Keynes and animal spirits. That's a whole different line of thought. But um, the third mandate that's not written down, but we know they have is what I call financial stability. And, um, you know, in other words, if a bubble bursts, if things are really hectic and the economy is taking it in the chin, you know, they're going to drop interest rates, flood the system with money, open up the discount window, et cetera, et cetera, in order to prevent large things from failing. And they did this in the bubble coming out of 2000 uh, when the dot-com bubble burst. They dropped rates, you know, substantially to try and get things going again. And what that did was it created a bubble in housing. And, uh, of course, then that one burst and uh, they dropped them again. And what they've now created, in my opinion, is the everything bubble. You know, they, they dropped, they held, they dropped them so low and held them so low for so long. And then, you know, follow that up with the COVID event and all the money they printed there that, you know, we, we can't really turn back now. I mean, it's, it, it, we're kind of in a debt death spiral um, and absent a major restructuring. I don't know how we get out of it. I, I think it's just, it's going to sadly continue to get worse and inflation is going to continue to rage until such time as that becomes, you know, the major issue and maybe we'll do a financial reset or, you know, a devalue of the dollar or something akin to what, uh, what Roosevelt did in the thirties when he devalued the dollar. I mean, this is what we're going through right now is a sovereign debt crisis. And it's very much a parallel to the sovereign debt crises of the early 19th century. I mean, they, those all occurred as a result of world war one. Um, you know, but we had a bunch of them in all the various countries in Europe. And, um, you know, we're having one here right, right now, in my opinion. It's it's early days, but it started in 08. You know, they got it all back under control. It seemed calm for a while, um, but it seems to be accelerating again here. Yeah, and it definitely seems to be accelerating at, at, at the very least, right? I mean, yeah. it's like we're, we're at a house of cards right now, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. Like, what is it going to take for this house of cards, I guess, to, to pummel, do you think? Is it is it going to be like just the Powell essentially just continuing to raise interest rates? Do you think that's the right move? Or like, I mean, I don't well, know. I, I, would, I wouldn't want his job no matter what, because he's damned if he does and he's damned if he don't. Exactly. He doesn't. I mean, I, I don't know what he'll do. They, they generally get it wrong. So he'll probably keep raising rates uh, until something breaks. Um, I think the something breaking is the banks. They've already started to break. More of them will break. I think two related things that will break are the stock market. I think you know, the stock market right now is on hopium, thinking that the you know that he's going to pivot soon and more money is coming, free money is coming their way, and so it's being held together. I think you know the 
the fundamentals of the economy are going to get to the stock market and that's going to break. And then probably the biggest one, the, the big enchilada, in my opinion, to break is the bond market. The bond market still is somewhat believing that we can go back to two or three percent inflation. Um, and in my opinion, we can't. And so and um, the bond market is, you know, the, the interest rate is the price of money and it's sent by the supply and demand. And the supply is, you know, the, um, you know, the amount the government wants to issue and the demand are what in, investors are willing to buy. And, you know, the, the supply right now, I mean, we've got 32 trillion in debt, like 8 trillion of it rolls over in the next 12 to 18 months. And, and we're running a $2 trillion deficit. So, you know, they've suddenly, you know, because we've financed so much of it short term, because there wasn't a lot of demand on the long end of the curve, you know, we've, we've got a lot of money that's very subject to these interest rates. I mean, if, if uh, Powell keeps going and he takes the, you know, the, the Fed funds rate up to, you know, six, six and a quarter, six and a half, everything's going to break, in my opinion, including the bond market. And because there just aren't enough buyers. And so, you know, at that point in time, I mean, right now, the government's selling bonds through QT, you know, or, uh, quanti- or, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, quantitative uh, tightening. And and so, um, you know, they, they the, the, the demand just will not be there and they will have to go to yield curve control, in my opinion, which is a resumption of QE, which is a resumption of printing money. And so so I think we have those things in our future. Um, it sure is interesting to watch Powell trying to bluff and pretend that they're not there, you know, and that's to my way of seeing it. That's what he's doing. Excuse me. But he's got a you know, he's got a. Um, you know, he's got a very hard hand to play because the math is, is relentlessly against him. You know? Yeah, it definitely yeah. seems like everything's stacked against him, but I agree with you. I would not want his job. I mean, I don't know if there's any any money in the world that could uh, that can make me want his yeah, uh, no, he's, position right it's, now. It's, it's karma that he's there because he's got such a big ego that he wanted to get reappointed. Anyone with half a brain could look at what was going on when his appointment came up a year or so ago and say, holy shit, this guy's got half a brain. He'll get the fuck out of there and declare victory. Right. But he didn't. You know, he's like, oh, I don't want to be the first guy to not get reappointed. So he campaigned to get reappointed. He got reappointed. Well, okay, now what? You know, I mean, he's going to no matter what happens here. And it's hard to tell exactly what the roadmap is because it depends on what they do. um, I I don't see how he gets out of this without having a terrible reputation for being responsible for, you know, things really being in a bad position. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, it seems like you think we're in in the camp for more uh, a more pain ahead, right? So, I mean, do you yeah. think? You know, I'll ask you, like, if you go on like the financial Twitter side of things, there's yeah. really two camps, right? right? There's one that that looks at the rearward rearward data and says we're not in a recession yet because you know unemployment's not uh, not not very high. Um, the CPI print came at four four percent last month. Those kind of metrics, they're looking at all that that kind of stuff. And then there's the other side of the camp, which looks at everything under the hood. You know, we got credit card debt at an all time high. We got personal savings at an all time low. We got you know basically all these bubble student loan repayments not even going yet. Right. Um, you know, so, so so many things and so many cracks underneath the hood. Yeah, there there are a lot of cross currents, and it, it does make it tricky. I mean, I look at the TSA data, and people are still traveling. I look at the the open table data, and people are still going to restaurants, and you know. But you're starting to see at the edges the fraying. I mean, you're seeing more delinquencies in the cars, and more delinquencies on the mortgages. Um, you're starting to see some of the employment stuff going the wrong direction slowly. Uh, you're seeing some companies are getting hurt, you know, in terms of results. I mean, Micron 
semiconductor manufacturers just reported dreadful results. I mean, just huge losses. Um, you know, I mean, it's a big, robust economy. and We printed a lot of money. I mean, I've heard as many as 20% of the economy is being paid by the government in some form. So if you're getting a government check, you're not really at risk of, you know, losing your income stream. Um, you know, we don't have a highly levered housing market the way we did in the 80s. Um, it's it, the bubble. The bubble's kind of subtle, but it's there. And I think it's going to come about when I think the biggest thing that's prevented Bitcoin and gold from going to the moon is that the stock market has really felt like a one way bet for most people. And, and, and that's in large part because we had enormous deflation from 1980 to present and in a deflationary environment where interest rates are getting lower and lower and lower, the value of stocks gets higher and higher and higher. And, you know, you're seeing this echo bubble. I mean, you know, 2021 or two was the worst market in a long time for both stocks and bonds. Um, and, and yet, you know, they came roaring back. And, and so I think 2021 was an enormous bubble top. We went down roughly 20% of the stock market. Now we're back another 11 or so. So stock market off the peak is, is only down 9%. So this bubble hasn't really burst, but it reminds me, Brandon, very much of, um, what happened in the 08, 07, 08 area, which is to say, it takes a little bit of time for things to flow through. I mean, you know, if you watch the big short, I mean, Burry was hurting in 2006 and even in 2007. And, um, you know, then in 07, in the summer of 07, the Bear Stearns CDS funds, real estate funds blew up. And everyone was like, oh, that's interesting. What's that mean? And we all knew, I was an investor back then, we all knew that there was an enormous housing bubble based on unrealistically low interest rates. I mean, you know, there was people were standing in line to buy houses. It was the same old crazy, crazy stuff. Um, so we could see it. Um, but, you know, if you could see it as early as 06, 07, and guess what? It didn't become a real issue until September, October, November of 08. So, you know, the time between when the first, you know, cracks obviously appear and, um, you know, you hit the bottom, it could be a while. But if, you know, if you look at, I mean, my view is, you know, we, we, we're, we're starting to see cracks now. Silicon Valley Bank broke, um, and that was a big one. Um, and so, you know, I would expect that in the next six months, there's going to be a lot more negative news on, on the things we talked about, you know, employment, inflation, the economy, et cetera. I think it's all going to go in the wrong direction. And uh, at some point, panic sets in, and then it can go too far in the wrong direction. But that also, you know, can be a real fuelant for somebody who's got a, you know, a good business and, and knows how to take advantage of it. So. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's been like a lot of, uh, you know, un, I guess unrealistic businesses that have, have been, you know, in this uh, zero mm. interest rate environment. Right. I mean, they've been essentially not making a profit for, you know, uh, years at a time, maybe even a decade. And they just keep getting funded because money was cheap essentially. So, I mean, it seems like it, it helped like fuel a lot of the, a lot of the tech growth and other things like that. But, you know, Powell tried it, maybe saw the writing in the wall in 2019. But, you know, quickly, you know, as you said, like maybe it was his ego or what he wanted to be reappointed. Uh, he quickly reversed course. But now it seems like he's kind of scrambling to, I guess, make up for lost time in a sense. But, you know, it seems like it, it's almost obvious that the money printing is, is going to come down the line. But, you know, I think. I'm curious how you think like Bitcoin's going to react because, you know, you, you alluded to, you know, potentially Bitcoin shooting up, but, 
this is the first time we're going to have a having where you yeah. know the, the where the economy. Yeah. No, I know you got yeah, which has led some people and and also the supply of available coins. I mean, there's been some great work by um, oh, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was on a podcast recently. Uh, he's, he remains anonymous. He was a uh, carrot, maybe something or other. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, rational root. Yeah, rational so. root. Yeah, he, he he identifies as a carrot, right? Yep. He was on he was on Peter McCormick's podcast. They had a carrot in front of his face, but um, and as he points out that um, you know there's a lot less Bitcoin actually on exchanges available to be traded. So you know you get less less available for trade. You get a having cycle taking place, and then you add on top of that. You know, a flip in the in the Federal Reserve policies that leads to you know massive additional money printing, and you know his view is, hey, the last cycle was kind of truncated, maybe because of the Chinese miners going offline. There are a lot of reasons and theories for that, but you know he he thinks that there's a chance this next cycle takes us to five hundred thousand a coin. Look, none of us know, and we can't predict that. I'm not counting on that. You know, I'll be pretty satisfied when we break the old time high of sixty eight or nine, and when we kind of break through hundred, I think you know then. We, That'll be just another touch point for everybody who's watching it and skeptical to go, oops, yep, it did it again. You know, another higher high, you know, and, and so, um, yeah, it's, it, you know, you're right, though. It's it's an interesting set of circumstances that, that lead us to that point. Um, having said that, do recall that, you know, the, co- the response to COVID in 2020 was part of what led to that next launch from 10,000 to 50,000. You know, so we've we've had we've had some Bitcoin price growth in a massive printing operation. I mean, that whole COVID response where they sent checks out to everybody and PPP to all those companies, and you know, they they grew the money supply forty two percent in two years. I mean, good God, that's never happened before. I mean, it's and that's why that's why I say it's a really interesting and exciting time here because you know we're we're definitely outside of the boundaries of what's normal. You know, and and right now it might not feel that great because, you know, I don't know, at least for gold guys, it doesn't feel that great because gold can't seem to get through 2000. But, you know, I mean, even this year, I mean, even in spite of the fact that Powell is pretending to be Paul Volcker, which he's not, um, you know, Bitcoin's up almost 100 percent from the bottom. I mean, it bottomed at 15,000, what, you know, fall of last year. I don't know the exact day or month, but and now it's at 30. So, I mean, that's less than half a year. So, um, you know. Bitcoin will smell it, gold will smell it, and we will be rewarded as the central banks do what they inevitably have to do. And that's that's the important thing, I think, for people to understand that they absolutely have to do this. I mean, look, some people say, well, OK, what can make your thesis wrong? You know, try and be objective about this, play devil's advocate. And I'll tell you, you know, and, and people laugh when I tell them this because it's not likely. But I say, yeah, OK, well, here's what here's what could screw us up. OK. Let's say the government gets really responsible. Let's right, you're laughing, right? Let's say they, you know, means test social security and cut social security benefits by 30% and decide to stop funding Ukraine and pull out of all these countries that we've got military troops in and cut the defense budget in half and put spending caps on other areas of the budget. And suddenly, you know, and raise taxes. And suddenly the budget starts to look like it's balanced. Well, in that particular case, I mean, I think Bitcoin would still do okay because of the adoption curve and all the other use cases. But, you know, gold particularly, I think, you know, wouldn't do as well because people would say, well, you know, I mean, inflation is driven by deficit spending, which then leads to monetizing that deficit spending through money printing. I mean, that's that's the obvious and direct connection. You know, uh, money printing leads to expansion of the money supply, 
which then leads to more money chasing the same amount of goods, which leads to higher goods prices, which is the definition of inflation, goods and services prices. So, so if for some way, if in some way the governments would start would really start to get responsible, you know, this this wouldn't work as well. It would take longer. It wouldn't be as good a thesis as it is. But I, you know, I mean, I just look at the U.S. as an example. Now you're in Canada. You know, we just bumped our debt limit up to really unlimited for a couple of years. And they, they were bragging about how responsible they were because they put a flat cap on 7% of the total spending, like 93% of the budget they didn't even touch. They said, oh, but we're, you know, we're cutting back. This 7% can't grow for the next two years. Well, whoop-de-doo. I mean, that's, you know, right? I mean, that's nothing. You know, that's a rounding error. You know, I mean, meanwhile, you know, CPI is going to adjust Social Security up another 5 or 6% this year. It went up almost 9% last year. You know, meanwhile, you know, the interest expense is running $850 billion a year. As, as they continue to roll these bonds over at these high interest rates, it's going to go to a, tr- it's going to go to a trillion, a trillion two. You know, I mean, last year, the deficit, last fiscal year in the United States, calendar year ended uh, September 2022. The deficit was $1.3 trillion. This year, it's going to be at least $2.2 trillion, maybe $2.3 or $2.4. So, you know, the U.S. is looking like a third world country, you know, fiscally and financially which leads to money printing, which leads to the thesis that we are playing, which is that, you know, fiat always gets debased. It's just math. I mean, that's Greg's line, Um, you know, being true now more than ever. And so you've got to hold scarce assets, you know. No, exactly. But, you know, you brought up like Bitcoin doing a little bit better in a certain scenario than gold. And I kind of want to dive into that a little bit with with the COVID scenario, right? Because we had the massive amounts of money printing, right? The 42% printing in two years. Bitcoin seemed to perform really well, right? It, it shot up to the all-time high. And then obviously, you know, now it's kind of floating around, what, like 30K-ish time-ish yeah. right now. But, you know, the narrative kind of going around that time was like, you know, gold was supposed to be the inflation hedge and it didn't do really well in you know, the, that, that, time. well, it's, it's, it's a, it's yes. Yes. And no. I mean, it, it, in gold terms, it did pretty well. And a couple of things to remember, cause I was writing both of those at the time. Um, there was a time gold actually smelled it first. So gold pre let's, let's go back to pre all that stuff. Kind of let's go back to 2017. Okay. Gold was kind of stuck at 1365 and I don't know, Bitcoin, well, 2017, 2018, 2019, Bitcoin was some in the three to five thousand dollar range. You know what I mean? Maybe a little higher. You know, maybe eight thousand a few times. Um, gold moved first. Bitcoin kind of stayed in that five to ten range through most. Of, you know, I don't have the charts right in front of me, but through a lot of seventeen and eighteen, and gold broke through thirteen sixty five. You know, and started going higher, and and you know eventually squirted up to as high as twenty twenty, and and so that's a you know 40 percent move in gold in gold. I know by Bitcoin standards, that's shitty, right? I mean, it's 40% in a few years, that's shitty. But by gold standards, that's pretty It's pretty dramatic. I mean, you know, gold typically, it was a, a good year for gold is up 10 or 11% and a bad year is down a little bit. So, um, but what then happened is, of course, Bitcoin came, Bitcoin was slow. And I remember it very clearly because I had friends who were in both. And the Bitcoin was like, Jesus Christ, your shit's moving and mine's not. And I was like, yeah, I know, I don't get it. But then once Bitcoin started to move, oh, it blew past gold, right? I mean, and so, you know, I mean, Gold went up 30, 40%. Bitcoin did a five bagger, right? So, so yeah, Bitcoin, I mean, this is why Bitcoin is the sharper spear and it's the much better investment because it's got two things going on, the money printing and the adoption curve, whereas gold just has the money printing, right? And so, but they tend to move in parallel. And, and honestly, 
Bitcoiners should be rooting for gold to get, even if Bitcoin stays at 30, Bitcoiners should be rooting for gold to get through 2050, which is the all-time high that it's seen in the last few years. Because if and when it does, it'll be a breakout. Everyone will know that. And it'll imply, in my view, it'll imply that Bitcoin's going to follow it, probably much more dramatically. But but gold is more widely distributed. And I think it's it's the one thing it's pretty good at, and I've noticed how it trades over the years, is it kind of smells what's coming before it actually happens. You know, it, it actually started moving before Powell did his pivot and before the repo blowout and before COVID stuff. Gold was moving throughout all of that. It kind of knew, you know, for whatever reason, there's, there's, there's money printing coming. We're on the move. And then when it came, Bitcoin went berserk. And, and I think that's, I'm looking for that same pattern on this next cycle. So I'm really, I've got my eye glued on the gold price. And everyone says, well, gold, it's really sucked. Well, it has for three years. It's gone nowhere. It's kind of bounced between 2050 and 1700. But, you know, right now it's at 19 and change, 1920 maybe. And that's down 6% off the all-time high. I mean, we've, had the, we've had one of the, the most aggressive interest rate hiking cycles ever. And, and gold's down 6%. I mean, in, in the past, when you had very aggressive rate hiking cycles, gold would go down 20, 30% easily or more. So to me, gold, gold is, is aware of and smelling the fact that this rate hiking cycle cannot last and it will not last and that they will pivot. So, um, you know, watch the price of gold and it'll, in my opinion, it'll be an early warning indicator that the price of Bitcoin is about to take off too. And, and then then put your money in Bitcoin because it's going to go much farther, much faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. It always seems it's, it always seems to be that way. But it's interesting that you, you lined that out that way that, you know, you're kind of like looking at the gold to be almost like the first mover, which is it is it's, it's historically that's what's happened. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it, because, you know, the gold investors kind of have that hard money, you know, knowledge. Well, and there are more of them. There are more yeah. of them. And it's it's the whole world. And that's the thing. I mean, remember, this: the world's not just the U.S. and Canada. I mean, we're small. You know, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, it's in the incremental report. It's a very good chart that shows it. Last year, central banks throughout the world bought a record amount of gold. You know, and, and, and frankly, a lot of these countries, they're like the old gold bugs. They don't really get it. I don't think India gets Bitcoin. I don't think most of China gets Bitcoin. You know, I don't think, I mean, Russia, I think, gets it a little bit more. I don't think the Arab states get Bitcoin. And I don't think Brazil gets it quite the way we get it. And so, so when those countries are saying, hey, the, the U.S. is out of control, they're seizing our assets, so they're going to do monetary debasement, their first thought is, okay, we got to buy more gold. You know, gold will protect us from that. You know, I mean, eventually the first thought will be we got to buy more Bitcoin, but they're not there yet. You know, they're not down that curve. I mean, we, this is an area where the U.S. leads because we've got more savvy Bitcoiners in the U.S. probably, you know, than any other country in the world, right? So, I mean, I should say the U.S. and Canada, really what I call North America. Yeah, so. no, I, I would agree with that statement, I would say. But yeah. um, you've been very generous with your time. But before I let you go, I got to ask one more question. Sure. So what do you think it's going to take to get to hyper Bitcoinization? Oh, yeah. Well, I, it's, historically, it's always just been a loss of confidence, right? I mean, people need to realize that their money is losing value so rapidly that they absolutely positively have to protect themselves. I mean, everyone has within them a self-preservation mechanism so that when you're out in the, you know, the, you know, out in the jungle and a lion comes running at you, you know, you run like hell, you try and hide so you don't get eaten alive. And, you know, if you look at Weimar, if you look at Venezuela, you look at anywhere where the money is being destroyed. I mean, you look at Turkey today or Argentina today, 
you know, when it, it it's a process, right? You start off with low inflation, then you get to medium inflation, then you get to high inflation, then you get to really high inflation. And, you know, you you watch the financials of the, comp, of the country you're dealing with. And, you know, right now we're in one of those deflationary periods because, look, the, the high inflation we had and what happened to the price of gold and Bitcoin, that scared the shit out of the authorities. And that's why Powell's trying to be a tough guy. You know, he, he knows that there's a risk of hyperinflation here. He knows it. And that's why he's doing what he's doing for as long as he can do it. But at some point in time, there's going to be a bigger risk, which is societal collapse. And he's going to say to himself, oh, shit, you know, I, I can push this hard, but I can't have societal collapse. Well, guess what? New inflation targets four. We're going to have to live with four for a little while while we, you know, print some money and so on and so forth. And of course, that'll be the next leg up in this shit. And, and so eventually, you know, what, what used to be 2% inflation, you know, I mean, you get these ratchets. I mean, Tavi Costa on, on Twitter has a great chart, which shows kind of the three waves of inflation in the 70s. And there were a couple of times they knew inflation was a problem in the 70s. They tried to solve it. They tried to tighten and inflation went back and, and they did. And inflation came down a little bit, but then they had economic troubles. So they loosened up again. Boom, inflation went back. And each each time it was a higher low and a higher high. And of course, they solved it all because Volcker at the end of the decade went crazy, took inflate interest rates to 20 percent and said, I'm going to solve this once and for all. And there wasn't, you know, and they could do that because the debt level was low enough. And they did. And they got, you know, they literally got inflation under control, and put it back in the can. But they can't do that today because debt's now 130 percent of GDP, not 30. And so, you know, what will happen is um, the inflation will just keep getting worse each year. And eventually, maybe somebody will be elected who's a socialist. Maybe we'll get an MMT person in there. People will be really hurting. We'll go to, you know, CBDC and universal basic income. And, you know, the government, the government will continue to think it can get away with printing money. And once it becomes clear that that's the case, anyone who has money will say, I need to be outside of the dollar. I need to be outside of this currency. And that's what Austrians call a crack up boom which is, you you know, I mean, you quickly, you get paid something in dollars, you immediately exchange it because you know it's going to lose value. And eventually when nobody wants to hold the dollar, well, then it's worthless. There's no point in holding it because you know it's worthless. And so, you know, it's it's Hemingway's, you know, gradually then all at once. And, you know, it, it's like and Balaji had a great um, uh, podcast with Marty, Marty Bent. It was long, but he talked about how Russia fell. And, you know, and, and the parallels are, are good, by the way. I mean, you know, Russia was lying like crazy. All the all the statistics were fake, et cetera, et cetera. And but just eventually one day it just kind of imploded. And I, I think that's what will happen here. I mean, when confidence is fully lost in the government and the Federal Reserve System, you know, everyone will say, you know, what do you mean you don't own gold and Bitcoin? What are you nuts? You know, you, you like being robbed, you know, and, and inflation will be just raging and, and eventually the currency will become worthless. Now, Having said that, there is a there's a there's a possible stopping point before we get to that stage, which is kind of a little bit of what Roosevelt did on, on the opposite spectrum. We were in raging deflation, and that is what I call a government reset. I mean, if somebody were really smart at the Federal Reserve and within the government, they would say, "Oh, this inflation's out of control. We need to have a reset," you know, and they'd try and wipe out the debt and you know have a new dollar replacing five old dollars, and you know, in in effect. The new dollar would be based on something sound like oil or Bitcoin or gold or whatever, something you couldn't print. And, um, you know, we, we reset it and try and get inflation. And they might try that. You know, they might try a CBDC. I mean, you know, they're going to try anything they can to maintain their privilege because they're a bunch of crooks. But, and we know that. 
But you know, meanwhile, you know, they, they can't they can't print Bitcoin, they can't print gold. And you know, I'm willing to bet that whenever their currency fails, these are the, the two best alternative currencies. So I think others should make that bet, even if not with all of their you know net worth or even a huge part of your net worth, with a piece of your net worth, because you know. I mean, if, if we have hyper Bitcoinization, Bitcoin's going up 100x or more. You know, gold's going up 10 or 15x or more. You know, and so even if all you had was 10% of your portfolio in these two assets, you would effectively protect all the other part of your portfolio that became worthless because the currency it was in is worthless. You know, so you don't need to be 100% in this shit. But I talk every day to people who have who don't own any of this stuff, and I'm like, what are you out of your mind? You know, I mean, they just got, they got 60, 40 stocks and bonds and real estate because you know, that's what's always worked, you know, and and look, they're right. I mean, for 40 years in a deflationary world, it was a good place to be, but we're not. The rules are changing and we're not in a deflationary world, not for the next 10 years. We're in a massively inflationary world because of the way the central banks have mismanaged all of this. And and that's just to my way of saying it, that's just a fact. So. You know, the difficulty is you got all these zigzags. There's a great chart on Twitter done by Dan Oliver at Mermican, which shows gold priced in marks in the Weimar Republic. And it's got all these huge zigzaggy lines. I don't know. You can maybe put it in your show notes, but, you know, it's going to be volatile. And that's that's hard. But you got to know what you own, know why you own it. Recognize that, you know, two, five, ten years from now, I think you'd be very glad you own sound money assets. Because I think I don't think there's anything that indicates to me that the governments are going to get more responsible and make, you know, the dollar a better store of value than it has been. You know, I just, I don't see that happening. So. Yeah. And I, and I agree with you. I don't really see it. Right. I mean, now if that starts happening, we got to rethink this a little bit and maybe, maybe you're waiting and this stuff isn't as high. Right. Yeah. But but I haven't seen it. I mean, you know, capping 7% of the expenditures of the U S federal government for a couple of years, that's not, that's, that's a bandaid on a gaping wound. You know, it doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't solve it. Yeah, exactly. But you've been very generous with your time. Oh, most, most, it was good to be with you. I enjoyed it. Nice meeting you. Yeah, Happy to come back anytime. And you know. Yeah, for sure. So why don't you stop? I mean, as, yeah. as people probably know. I don't know if you know it, but you know, you know it for sure. But people should know. I'm I'm a big loudmouth on Twitter. I try and be kind of the the leading advocate for sound money. So and I don't like the central banks, and I I don't make I'm not ashamed of that. I I try to. Um, let that dislike be known because, and I think everybody should not like the central banks. I think they've caused a lot of people, a lot of pain. I think we have to do everything we can to return to sound money, you know, fix the money, fix the world and eliminate central banking. It's, it's a curse. It's a total curse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree a thousand percent. I mean, and and everybody should follow Lawrence on Twitter. It's his, just his name. Just my name, Lawrence Lepard. Yeah. Yeah. So follow him on Twitter. And uh, yeah, man, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, it's like I said, you're welcome. I'm happy to come back. I enjoy talking to you. All right, man. We are all finished.